Hi. Hi. So I sent you the uh, recording of my conversation with Tien. You know, this is the guy from Zwara, that post I wrote about the greatest sales deck I've ever seen. I don't really know what a deck is. (laughs) What is the sales deck? It's your plan, right? A deck is just another word for presentation. Oh, oh. uh, So what do you think folks are going to get out of this episode? I found his uh, description of his service very interesting. I loved his creation of the word usership because it's so descriptive in that one made-up word about what his company does versus ownership. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really clever. Usership is a very good word, I think. that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, usership is such a great word because you can apply it to so many business models. I'm almost finished with payments for my car. Mm-hmm. It was four years. Yes, I'm using it. So I have usership. Well, did you do a lease or did you do a... But actually, when I'm finished with my payments, it wasn't a lease. You... I bought it. It's not a lease like you did. So, so you got... it wasn't so you... usership. <laughs> so you got ownership. I got ownership. So that's the... Uh, forget it. I'm Andy Raskin, and this is The Bigger Narrative. Four years ago, I published this article called The Greatest Sales Deck I've Ever Seen. It's about how a company called Zwara structured what I started calling its strategic narrative. Not the typical, here's your problem, here's our solution, here's why it's better than the others, but instead a declaration about a change in the world, what Zwara called the subscription economy. That post got popular. It's been viewed millions of times on Medium and LinkedIn, but I'd never actually met the CEO of Zwara until now. I'm so excited that my guest for this episode is Zwara CEO Tien Suo. Founded in 2013, Zwara helps companies do subscription billing. So if you pay for anything on a regular basis, instead of purchasing it outright, software, services, vendor guitars, seems like everything is now available in that usership model my mom referred to. Good chance Zwara is powering the billing, tracking your subscription tier, all that stuff. You know, I often hear from CEOs working on their strategic narrative that, well, Zwara had it easy because subscription economy was like so obvious. It turns out that couldn't be further from the truth. When I asked Yen, who took Zwara public in 2019, about the origins of that phrase, he said he really struggled to name what he was observing. He'd seen Netflix disrupt video sales. He had seen Salesforce, where he was employee number 11, disrupt Siebel. So he told that story to a journalist because... They have that ability to kind of distill it down. And so I told it to this friend, Tom Tolley. I think he wrote an article in The Motley Fool the next day, and he titled the article Powering the Netflix Economy. We loved it. We were like, that's exactly right. But we couldn't run around telling you right. Netflix is enough. <laughs> right. Branding issues, trademark issues. And so we tried all sorts of stuff. And we said, look, you know, subscriptions. And the problem with subscriptions is people couldn't really see it. They just thought it was $10 a month. And so it didn't really land. Uh, it just got too many blank stares back. And we always said, well, what, what we really do is billing. And they're like, okay, well, let me t- talk to me about that. So I think, gosh, what did we come up with? We tried, like, we tried the business cloud. This is before everyone started going cloud crazy. I think we used business cloud for like three to six months and we tried other things. And about a year later, we were telling the story again. And it just felt like, well, this time, the way the conversation is going, the worst subscription economy is a better fit. And mm-hmm. so we said, well, we'll try that again. Yeah. <laughs> so you came back to it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see the light bulbs. And part of it, I think, you know, Spotify might have been out by then. So people were more ready. There was more like nods to it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm seeing that in my life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
How involved were you in the building or deciding to use that as the story of the company as the CEO? Oh, I mean, it was... It's probably 90% of me. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And that's interesting. Yeah. Like, not every CEO sees this as their job. Do you think that was unusual about you? Or do you think that this is something CEOs need to do? I think it's something CEOs are doing, whether they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. Right? Who's talking about the company more than, than the CEO, right? And, and who needs to talk about it more accurately? Yeah. And so I, I think this, in many ways, is the work. Yeah. And so I try to see every opportunity to talk about the company as another opportunity to, to try something out and, and to test it. You know, I probably saw the power of storytelling being at Salesforce. Yeah, yeah. Betty off a big storyteller. But in terms of what the company story is, that's definitely me. I've noticed a lot of parallels between the Salesforce story, end of the era of software, now we're in the era of the cloud. There's that same, what I now have been calling old game, new game yeah. setup. When you try to uh, tell people stories, you, you do this dozens, if not hundreds of times, and you try to see what lands and what didn't land. And you realize that people need something to grasp onto as a starting point. It was Stravinsky, right? I think most of us know the melody, which opens uh, Fantasia. But the first time we actually performed it in a concert hall, people walked out because it was just, there was nothing to grasp onto and it was so different. And now it's considered a classic. That's not what you want. <laughs> you want to start with something that people know hmm. today and then use it as the anchor point and then take them to where you want hmm. to go. Hmm. And I think the key thing that you did that I don't see a lot of people do is you didn't just say, hey, here's a new world we want to create. You said, here is the new world that's already here. (laughs) And there are already signs that this is where we're going. When I work with teams, one of the things I always say is this new game or new world, whatever, cannot be your doing. You can be powering it and and accelerating it, all those things. But that is one of the really, really smart things you did. And, And one of the reasons it seemed like your story was so powerful. I've always been curious. So when I wrote this post about your story, how did it land with you? It was nice to see someone appreciated, right? Like you see a finished product and people think, oh, that's great. But you don't see all the iterations that went into mm, it. Mm. And, you know, you know, we sometimes number our decks, our PowerPoints, and the numbers will get into like the 20s. So we do hone it over time. Yeah. And, and then, then you sort of pick it apart at the end and, and, and see that finished product. Yeah. But there's an arc to it. If you look at all the movies of all time, there's only like five or six plots. But that doesn't mean there's not an infinite variety in just great movies that you can enjoy over and over again. So there's an arc to these things. Yeah. After I wrote that post, thousands of people probably wrote to me like, wow, this helped me pitch, whether it was my startup or some proposal I had in my company. But I also got a lot of people saying it didn't work. And it always works. (laughs) I would say, uh, could I see it? And nine times out of 10, what they had done is they had taken your slides and just sort of pasted in their own logo and change subscription economy to, I don't know, whatever economy they, they did. And then they would just paste that onto whatever their old deck was. Right. And like you said, one of the things I have not done, I, I definitely showed your story as an example, but I haven't put a framework out there that's like, okay, just fill in these blanks and we're good to go. Because I think you're right. There's like these principles that sort of work, but each one feels like it's got to be different. Yeah, gosh. There's definitely patterns you use, right? But you don't want it... Like you, 
there are movies out there where you can almost feel that the screenwriters did like just have a bunch of templates. And so even though there's only five or six plots out there, you don't start with that. You're trying to create something. Yeah. And the storytelling narrative winds up guiding you to the right places. This subscription economy story, you started telling it quite a while ago. And as you said, like the CEO tells this story more than anybody in sales and, and in talks. But what are the ways that you have used this story in your leadership as a leadership tool? Now, this story is, is part of part of who we are. I, I would suspect if you pick anybody, any CEOs, and you say, well, why are you in this company? Just a note in case that wasn't clear, what Tian just said was ZEOs. That's what Zora calls all of its employees. There, there's a strong belief that this is the future. And there's a strong belief that there's an excitement that we are working on something that is, is our contribution towards defining the future. And it's a very relevant future. And people understand when you're trying to define the future, it can certainly be hard. So that helps people understand, okay, it is going to be a bumpy ride. It's not necessarily a smooth ride, but the arc of the ride is there. So history winds up being on our side. That's really important. So it sounds then, like you're recruiting and, and getting people to feel bought into the company. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you look at our, our vision, we call it the world subscribed as a whole story. That's the future that we see. And then our mission to create that future is to help the best companies win in the subscription economy. And so you can start building the elements of the company. And then next, well, how exactly do we help companies win? And that gets into the technology, the people, the expertise, and everything then lines up behind that. Yeah. And I imagine fundraising and IPO, it was probably played a big role there too. It's always dangerous to oversimplify it. But when you look at it in hindsight, with the lens of simplicity, the investors that believed the subscription economy was the future are saying, take my money. And the investors that didn't, they're like, I don't know what this is. And so and it was pretty binary there too. So it acted as a filter for who, who's going to be supporting this company. Yeah, especially in the private markets. In the private markets where you're looking at more long-term things. Then it becomes a binary decision. Look, you either believe in subscription economy if you don't. If you believe in it, this feels like a no-brainer, right? But this is the future. Yeah. You almost act to me like what you're really selling is that subscription economy. And of course, you're selling Zora, but it feels that way. You know, some of the pushback I sometimes get around, hey, we got to craft this narrative is, well, do prospects really have time for this story? Don't they just want to know the features and capabilities? It certainly seems not to be the stance that you've taken, but how do you handle that? Like, have salespeople said that to you? We teach our sales reps to, to, to modulate it. I guess I, I was in a sales call a while ago, and the sales rep, he's taking half an hour to give the subscribe deck. So I don't know that they need to spend the whole meeting doing that. Right, right, right. But it, it puts in, people want to know the context, right? People want to know the why. And so you got to start by saying, look, here's our vision. Here's where we're going. Because people aren't just buying a product, especially in today's world where this is a service that's, that's going to evolve. You're going to release more features. And so they want to know, like, what's your vision? And everybody else says, following your vision, is that the group of customers or people or companies that it makes sense for me to be part of? Because this isn't a point in time product where I buy it and, and I get these X features, right? This is an, a journey that might last years and years. Mm -hmm. 
And so giving that context is important. Hmm. And then you can relate back to it. Okay, here's why we built yes. the features. We yes. And right. I, I imagine the more successful and persistent you are at telling that high-level story as the CEO and maybe through marketing, the, the less yeah. work that salespeople have yeah. to do, like they can just sort of refer to it. Oh, yeah, the you know, subscription economy, yeah. <laughs> check. And, yeah. and you can move on to, yeah, what's going to be yeah. hard about winning in subscription economy and how you help them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 How has this narrative had to evolve, if at all, over the years? I, th I think it's still relevant, but have you come to a place where you're like, hey, this isn't resonating as much as it used to, or hey, we need to broaden it at some point? So we do have formal structures. We, we have a set of storylines, and there's a master storyline that we call a subscription economy, and then we do sub-flavors of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a retail flavor, there's a media flavor. There's a flavor for the finance department. So you can pick apart the structure and actually see there's a structure to all this. And we're constantly iterating on those. So if you look mm -hmm. at our structure for the, the, the finance world, there was one time was, well, look, Wall Street doesn't understand the subscription economy. And then they started getting, okay, Wall Street understands the subscription economy. <laughs> so the narratives evolve because the, the, how it's affecting the retail industry is different than, say, the manufacturing industry. So we can definitely yeah. do those things. Other things that you wrestle with, we did an acquisition of a revenue recognition company. And we realized that it's not like the people buying the product are even thinking subscription economy. We want to sell the product to non-subscription economy businesses. And so it's like, well, we can't create cognitive dissonance or inherent conflict. So we took a step back and said, no, no, no. The reason they're buying the revenue recognition product is because they live in a world of multiple business models. And the mm. reason we live in the world, world of multiple business models is because we no longer live in a simple product world. Mm -hmm. right? And so the product versus subscriptions context certainly changes. And we can take the word subscriptions and you can extend it with different ideas. It's also why we picked the word subscriptions. I mean, there was some arguments around that. It was subscriptions are just $10 a month, but we also do like per minute, prepaid, postpaid. We do a lot of complex things or Uber. People might not think of Uber as a subscription business because you're not paying Uber $10 a month. But we'll say, no, Uber is absolutely a subscription business. Why? Because they're not selling a product. They start with the customer. They have a relationship with the customer. You can see an Uber ID. And they only chose to transact the way they did. But Uber is a service that you, you subscribe to. You just happen to pay for it based on per ride. But there's nothing stopping them from, from, from innovating that, in that dimension as well. Yeah, and I think they have at least tried subscriptions at some different points. But yeah, I thought it was very interesting. I think it was a few years ago you started talking about goodbye ownership, hello usership. Yeah. And yeah. usership being this invented word, obviously, but really captured nicely this extension of subscription that you're talking about. So not literally just like magazine subscription, but... Yeah, yeah. I'll give you two quick stories to that. When the word cloud first came along, it was, it was Amazon EC2. Right. The word cloud really only meant compute power. But Mark Benioff was a big driver of this. It was like, well, but the word cloud, if you take it to its most generic level, is what we do. So he became determined to co-opt the cloud word because he's like, the broader trend is desktop into the internet and the internet is the cloud. And so there was a long campaign to position, okay, well, there's the consumer cloud, which is Amazon, which might not make that much sense even. Then there's the enterprise cloud, which is Salesforce. And today you, you see Salesforce is recognized as a cloud computing company. We had a similar experience. We, you know, subscription economy and the economists 
of all places, wrote a, uh, a series called The End of Ownership. And it's like, their message is exactly our message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're seeing the end of ownership. And in the book, there was a chapter. Another note here, the book Tian is referring to is Subscribed, which he co-authored in 2018, all about subscription business models. Gosh, I forget what it was called before. It's like, well, we, we got to rename this chapter to be The End of Ownership. <laughs> so we renamed the chapter of End of Ownership. And, and we said there's a broader trend, which is ownership and, and what replaces that. It's usership. And that's the arc of the subscription economy. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. And I use that example a lot to highlight the old and new game framework. But yeah. it's interesting to hear you say, whether it's your experience at Salesforce or your experience at Swara, that these words, you had to kind of commit to them. And it took time for them to achieve Oh, yeah, of course, that's what it means. And there was yeah. this shift. Naming is a funny thing. Like 90% of names sound really dumb at first. I'm sure Google's just sounded. PayPal probably was one of those names. They're like, oh, okay, well, that's awesome. But Microsoft, I mean, what is that? So yeah. and you think about the parents naming your kid. That takes forever. Yeah, yeah. No, no one likes it. But now you can't imagine, right, your kid with any other name. So these things, the names take time. Yeah, I, I like to think of them as even these names of these old new game as almost like logos, the way designers say that yeah. they're like an empty vessel that you pour yeah. meaning into. And totally it's going to take some time for that to happen. Yeah. By the way, I want to go back to what you said, too, about the sub flavors, because Zora has also been my model for how to take that one story at the top and tell that same story to the various different personas and audiences, whether that's, yeah. as you said, industries, or I've seen you do this also with role personas. Yeah. And in general, the formula seems to be, hey, there's this high-level shift that's happening. Let yeah. me tell you how that shift impacts your industry. Let me tell you how that shift impacts your role. And so you have all this role messaging that's well, the subscription economy means, let's say, uh, CIO, you go from enforcing rules to, I think it was enabling agility or something like this. That's awesome. You repeated it back. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I, I literally did a workshop this morning and showed that like four or five different ones that you've done because the typical approach is, hey, let's just do a different story for the different audiences. Yeah. And that leaves you very schizophrenic with a lot of stories to remember. Yeah. <laughs> Your approach was, I just thought, really brilliant in how to do the persona messaging. So this whole thing of, of, of how do you sustain a message over time and how it evolves? This is happening every day around us on Netflix, on HBO, right? Game of Thrones. Or if you want to look at a multi-year arc, right? What, what, what Marvel and, uh, and Kevin Feige has been able to do with the Avengers movies over a 10 year arc across like multiple storylines. And so it turns out these folks are showrunners. And so we got a showrunner to come talk to our marketing office. Well, oh, how that's so cool. Yeah, and people go, what is the actual showrunner? Well, like you look at Game of Thrones and you know every character practically has a showrunner and that showrunner is responsible for that character over multiple seasons. Hmm. And so they give that consistency to the storyline, to the arc. And then some of these TV shows have a different director every single week. So it's the showrunners that are able to force a level of consistency in storytelling where you can get a, a, a multi-episode or multi-series arc out of it. And so we feel like drawing from the media industry mm. is the best place to learn because they're the best. Yeah. When we wrote the book, it was all like, okay, Malcolm Gladwell and Dan Brown, right? 
And and then just a few weeks ago, I was talking to someone who was like, oh, yeah, I read this book. I think it was by Malcolm Gladwell. It's like, you, you're actually talking about our book. <laughs> so <laughs> I actually thought that might have been in Malcolm Gladwell's book. It's a, it's a, it's a really great sign because that's, that's what we aspire to. It really comes across that you're marketing at least the behaving this way, like a story first. Just, we know what we want to say. But it's like, how do we yeah. tell a through story? Yeah. Was there any influential experience other than maybe it was just the experience of Benioff that got you into this, oh, let's go tap into that stuff? Yeah. There's a video out there or a story out there. Like it's so embedded in my head. I don't even remember if I read it or saw it. But some guy, you know, during the Apple II era, gives Steve Jobs a keyboard to sign. And he takes a keyboard, he takes a pen and starts popping off all the keys because he hates the keys. He hates, you know, it's like this F1 key, it's terrible. We're going to pop it off. You don't really need it. And then you look at a Mac keyboard, it doesn't have any of these function keys. But I think it might have even been a Malcolm Gladwell article. But like 20 years later, he comes up with the iPhone. Like he's finally gotten rid of that damn keyboard. <laughs> it took him 20 years, but he got rid of all the keys. And so this is really just about iteration. I mean, we wrote the first deck for for for, for Zora. We're not talking about showrunners. Yeah, we're not talking about movies, right? We're yeah. just trying to tell a simple story, and and we're using a, a Tom as a journalist to help shape our story. Uh-huh. You do it over and over again, and you just get better, right? Every time you do it, you're like, well, you know, it's um, it's talking about Marvel references. It's, it's that damn Iron Man suit. You know, you imagine these writers sitting around for Iron Man eight or nine, whatever it is like, oh, what are we gonna do with that damn suit now? Yeah. Right, yeah. how are we gonna top the last episode? And sometimes you do it, sometimes you miss. Of course, the time, you just start to get more and more sophisticated. I, I do believe this is really important work. You asked, you know, if the CEO should be doing it, but you know, you spend all this time deciding how you wanna dress or how your office looks. And, and, and this is your corporate identity. And so the story that you tell is, is the story that people remember. Oh man, this was obviously a thrill for me. Talk about someone who sees strategic narrative as the CEO's job. I love Tian's point about how most of us are no longer selling products with fixed features, but things that are gonna evolve over years. So that in a software-eaten SaaS world, strategic narrative becomes the crux of positioning, not features, which will evolve, get copied, all that. And how amazing is this idea about treating your company like a TV series with a multiple season arcs, where each persona has its own story runner responsible for tying their story into the high-level one. By the way, if you want more on Zwar's approach to using strategic narrative to inform persona messaging, Check out a post I wrote called Tailoring Your Pitch for Multiple Audiences. It's on both Medium and LinkedIn. The Bigger Narrative is produced and edited by me, Andy Raskin, with music by Stephen Emerson and podcast cover art by Angela May Chen. Carla Borelli inspired the show by telling me I should do it over coffee. Thanks to Tien Suo, Jane Gonzalez, Sierra Dowling, Travis Hutch, Steve Yeager, and everyone at Zwara. Special thanks also to Judy Raskin, Richard Raskin, Justin Yoshimura, Jeff Smalling, Steve Pakras, and Carol Wasserman. And remember, the company story is the company strategy. By the way, this may be the last one I do for a while. Yeah. So you may have a little bit of a a break. Okay. Well, I need it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have other things going on right now. Uh, Well, thank you for being a great partner on these podcasts so far. I wouldn't call myself exactly a partner. What would you call yourself? A minor contributor. Not according to some of the feedback (laughs) I'm getting on LinkedIn. Okay, well, that's how I see it.
Okay. I'm happy if someone else sees I contributed somewhat more. Okay. Wonderful. 